So if you had six hours and you only had 47 words, what would they be? That's the question we've been asking ourselves over the last couple of weeks. If you, if you stepped into a moment of time and God came to you and he said, you've just got six more hours to live and I'm only going to let you say 47 words, what would they be? You know, sometimes when I'm reading through the Bible, I, I find myself asking some questions of, 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 of the text and of, of God that wasn't given to us. You get to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It's in, it's, it's in, it's in Jesus' last moments of his life, and, and we're painted this incredible picture where, where he, he understands the weight of what he's about to do. It says that his, in his sweat, he's, he's literally got droplets of blood, which is a, a literal physical condition that you only experience under the most, under the most extreme stress. And he makes this incredible statement where he says, God, if, if you can take this cup from me. But then he comes to the conclusion, but not my will, your will be done. Don't, don't you want to know what God was saying to him? When I, that's one of the moments when I'm reading Scripture. I, I want to know the other side of the conversation. It's one of the things when I get to heaven, I can't wait to find out what God was saying. We, we have what Jesus was saying. We have his prayer. We, we have what he was saying to the disciples, but, but, we're, but we don't have what God was saying to his son. If I had to guess, one of the things that he said, he just said to him, son, you've got to say what you need to say. From the foundations of the earth, we pick together 47 words that you've got to speak. You and I step into that moment, if that's what we were asked to step into, it would be daunting, right? We would be nervous. We would be filled with anxiety. Would I say enough? Would I say the wrong things? Would I address the right people? Would I leave somebody out? Would I have notes? Would I forget in the moment when it comes to me? But not Jesus. He knew what he needed to say. In that moment, he had the 47 words that he had been carrying in his heart from the foundations of the earth, from the moment this entire universe was set into the motion. He knew that that moment was going to come. He knew when the clock would start and he only had six hours left and 47 words to say and that he would say what he needed to say. Not for him, but for you and for me. You know why? Because a lot of people say things to us in our life that we hear over and over and over and over again. Words that echo throughout time, that are loud to us. And Jesus' words on the cross, one of the great gifts that they are to us is that it displaces the words that we need to stop hearing. And the only way that those words are silenced is when his words get louder. These are, these are seven of the loudest sayings in history. 47 of the loudest words ever spoken. Not because his volume was loud in the moment in time, but because these words, they just keep echoing throughout time. We should be able to hear them today as if we were there 2,000 years ago. And I'm telling you, for some of you here tonight, you are desperate to hear them so it will silence the things that you need to stop hearing. On Facebook just this week, if you're tracking with us in social media that somebody precious to us here in this church, just a moment of vulnerability, just shared about how someone told them at some point in their life that your birthdays will never be special again. 
Those are, those are words that people hear year after year after year. You have any words like that that you hear? That somebody said to you, you're not good enough. Your mother's not coming home. There's somebody else. You with me? There are words that people speak to us in this life. Even if they are spoken in a whisper, they are loud. Because we keep hearing them again and again and again and again. So Jesus steps into time and he says 47 words that have the power to displace those words so that those words don't define us anymore, that his words begin to define us and those words begin to set us free. Father, as we dig into this sermon tonight, as we dig into your word tonight, as we go back into this series that you've given us to explore in this time, these 47 words, these seven last sayings of Christ, God, that you would turn up the volume of these statements and they would be deafening, silencing the words of our past that have hurt us so that we can begin to listen to the words that have the power to heal us and transform us and set us free. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. 47 words. You know, we've been saying that, that, that this sermon series is going to challenge us out into the deep water, right? It's, 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 it's going to furrow our brow. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna cover ground that gets into the meaty parts of Scripture in this series. I, I remember that, that uh, the, the first pool that my family joined when I was in middle school, it was called Anarav. We grew up in a small community called Verina, and so they were really creative. They, so they just spelled Verina backwards. That's how you get Anarav. You love creativity, right? And so, so we belonged to this pool. And I remember the first day that I went, and I took a friend with me, and we were sitting there. We were in middle school, and they had a high dive, right? Anybody? Got a, they don't make high dives that much anymore, right, in community pools. And, and, and so in the, and we were sitting there talking about, we got to go off the high dive, right? I mean, we got to do it. And for like 20 minutes, we're sitting there debating who's going to go first, or we're going to do it today, we're going to wait. And then all of a sudden, like this little five-year-old kid, right, comes sprinting by us, which he's not supposed to do, by the way. I'm like, lifeguard, come on, how about a little whistle here for this kid? <laughs> sprinting by, doesn't even have floaties on, nothing, right? Sprinting by, up the ladder, never stops, runs right off. So sailing into the air, screaming, into the 12-foot well, pops up like a fish, swims to the ladder, gets up, and he's making his way. And I'm like, okay, looks like we're going off the hot dive today. Okay. There's, there's, moments, there's moments in our lives where, where something calls us forward into a place that, 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 that maybe creates a little bit of hesitation. And the Bible might be like that for you. It might be sometimes that you get in there and you start reading and it's just, you, you feel like you're in the deep end of the pool. You feel like you're going off the high dive. And what we want to say, we want to be a church that keeps telling you, oh, you keep climbing that ladder. You keep jumping off of that high dive. You, you keep getting out into the deep water because there is a place of fulfillment that the revelation brings from some of the meatier portions of Scripture. And, and we want to be a church that serves up some meat. Come on for your dinner. These are Jesus's 47. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We pick the King James. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's where we're going tonight. I thirst, it is finished, and Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We're going to spend a week on each one of these. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27. 
I'm going to start reading in verse 45. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation here, Matthew 27, 45 to 49. It says, At noon darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. It wasn't just shadowy in that, that one spot. Come on, across the whole land darkness came as if it were night. And it lasted until 3 o'clock. And at about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice. This is one of the moments where his words, his volume escalates. Eli, Eli, this is Aramaic, Lemai Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or in the King James, or maybe the translation that you're looking out of, it says, why have you forsaken me? Elizabeth Browning has an amazing poem about these words. She's the wife of the renowned English poet Robert Browning. She lived from 1806 to 1861. Listen to what she writes. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan to cry, his universe has shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation that of the lost no son, no daughter should use those words of desolation. He spoke those words so that you and I wouldn't have to. He spoke those words so that of all the things that you would have to say, you would never have to say them. Of all the things that God needs you to say, wants you to say, compels you to say, he doesn't ever want those words to pass by the lips of his children. Because he said it, I don't have to live it. But unless I feel it, I'll never get past it. That's our big idea that we're going to explore tonight. It's a weighty statement. Because he said it, I don't have to live it. But unless I feel it, I'll never get past it. There's something to be said for not ever having to say those words. But if you never feel the emotion of those words, I'm telling you, I'm tell you will get stuck there. And you will be doomed to say them on the day when you don't want to have to speak them the most. So let's talk about the desperation revelation that we're going to explore tonight. That's a phrase I like, a desperation revelation. Now we see this word, and many of us can resonate with this word, especially what's been happening, right, in Boston. We can appreciate this feeling of desperation revelation. If we had lived in that community where lots of those terrible things were happening, there might have been moments in the night where we felt desperate, where we felt powerless, where we felt vulnerable, and we knew that we wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And it could be situations where there's physical danger. It could be in moments of emotional despair. But we like participation at the City Life Church. Sometimes it's light, but sometimes it's weighty. Tonight's one of the weighty participation moments, and might not be as many people would want to make themselves vulnerable. But maybe somebody would say, just not tell a big story, but just a couple of sentences to help us understand when's a moment in time where you experience the feeling of desperation? Somebody, a desperation revelation. I know, it's a challenge. In the back, is that Sabra? Yeah, go ahead. She was in a relationship in a parking lot outside of a bar in her past, and, and the person that she had, had, had been in a relationship for the last two years, she knew that that person was never going to love her, ever. Desperation. That's good. Come on, Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, Tyler was saying when Noah was born, there was a, right before his birth, there was a few moments where they could not find the baby's heartbeat. And so just that feeling of desperation and all the NICU staff are flooding into the room. It's a, desper- it's a moment where you feel the emotion of desperation. Come on, you guys are good sharing. I don't know, see, it's stirring the pot. Dave. Being in Hawaii, playing in the surf with his family on vacation, he got sucked up into the undertow and just kept tumbling, 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 and he just thought in this moment, I'm, I'm going to die here today in desperation. One more. Somebody else had a hand up. Wayne. Flying into a combat zone in the military. A feeling of desperation. There's all kinds of moments in our lives where, where we might experience the motion. I remember the, the, one of the first times I, I ever felt this feeling of, of, of desperation is that we were uh, headed down. We were surprising uh, Vanessa's dad. It was before we had kids, it was about 15, uh, 14, 15 years ago, and we had surprised him with a, a golf outing in the Outer Banks. And so uh, it, it was, uh, it, this part was really funny for us, but not funny for him. The way they got him to the church is that one of the elders called him and told him the church was on fire. And so so, uh, so he raced out of the house and came to the church. We have a sick sense of humor that way. And uh, came racing to the to the church, and we were all there, all of his friends, and and uh, and and so we had all of his bags packed, and and we all caravan down into the uh, into the outer banks for a golf outing. So I had to stop to pee, and so we pulled off, and uh, and we were getting there just at sunup. You know, nobody's on the road, and so I wanted to catch back up to the caravan, which required me to drive a little bit faster than what I was supposed to. And so I was driving a, a lot faster than what I was supposed to, and you see the flashing red lights come up uh, behind, and so I, I pull over, and, and uh, so he asks me a couple of questions, and he asks me to get out of the car. Well, the next thing I know, he's, I'm turned around. I'm being handcuffed across the hood of my car, and, and some of the guys that are with me jumped out, and he reaches for his gun, and he tells them to get back in the car, and so, you know, it, it was, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny, you know, in that moment. Well, it turns out in North Carolina, it's still true today that if you're 20 miles over the speed limit, they, they will arrest you on the spot because if you're out of town, they had a problem with people not ever coming back to pay the ticket. And so once you get arrested, you're motivated to pay your fine, right? And so he shoves me into the squad car, takes me down. I'm just here to play golf, right? I don't even like golf. I'm just there to play, just there to play. And so the guys that were with me, they, they go to the ATM machine. They get money. A true story, they post my bail. Of all the bad things that I've done in my life that I've never got arrested for, right? I'm getting arrested now. They post my bail. They get me out. We drive. I kid you not, this was in March. It started snowing. They closed the golf course. We had to turn around and go home. Desperation. Revelation, right? We come back. I know it's terrible, isn't it, Joy? Terrible. She's catching up to the story. She's catching up to the story. So we come back to Williamsburg, and so we all go to play there. And at the end of the, I had a horrible round. Most of my golf rounds are horrible. In fact, I'm actually selling my golf clubs because I really just can't stand golf. And so, 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 so we get back. We play golf. I go back to the car, right? So, and you know what I realized? That I've locked my keys in the car. So then we had to call Vanessa. Vanessa had to come all the way from Richmond to unlock my car. So desperation. Desperation. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's not, but it's still all the same. Is that you are in a circumstance, in a situation where you have a urgent, desperate need and you are powerless to do anything about it. That you have this sense of something needs to happen right now and I can't do it. 
even if you were to just try a little bit harder, even if you were to do the best that you can, you would not be able to change your situation. It's a desperation revelation. Some people walk in a place of desperation and they don't know it yet, which is why the word revelation is important, which is where this verse we get to in Isaiah 59 chapter 2 is that Israel was a place in their, this time in history when Isaiah was a prophet that they were desperate and they didn't even know it. And so he begins to prophesy in the nation because he knows that they need to see how desperate they are. They were blind to it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They were helpless and they needed change and they didn't even know. And so he writes, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away. Is there anything more desperate than that, than feeling as though God has turned his back on you? He has turned away and will not listen anymore. He's not even going to hear your prayers anymore, Isaiah tells them. And they didn't even understand how desperate their circumstance was. All right, turn to Luke. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, I'm going to be getting... Uh, read in verse 1, it says, One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. And he noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them there and were washing their nets. And stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, who we know to be Peter, its owner, to push it out into the water. And so he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets over to where the high dive would be to catch some fish. Master Simon replied, we've worked hard all last night and we didn't catch a thing. That's his way of saying, hey, you, you leave the fish into us and we won't try to tell you how to teach. You don't tell us how to fish. But if you say so, come on. I'll let down the nets again. This time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. And a shout for help brought their partners in the other boat. And as soon as both boats were filled the fish with fish, they began to sink. And when Simon Peter, watch this, when he realized, come on, Revelation, when he realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and he said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish that they had caught, as were the others with him, his partners James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied, Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be fishing for people. He had his desperation revelation. It's powerful, isn't it? You would think he'd be excited. This was a, a wealthy moment for them. You would think that he would be celebrating. But in this moment where Jesus did this, an amazing miracle, Peter has a desperation revelation. He begins to understand that this truly is the Messiah. And all of a sudden he understands that he's in the presence of a living God. And he sees himself for what he is. And he says, you, you've got to get away from me. A desperation revelation. And it was the beginning of his vocational ministry as a follower of Christ. Now, there's lots of ideas about the timeline of this story. I like John MacArthur. This is another great book. I'm giving some nods to some books in the series. It's called 12 Ordinary Men. This is what it looks like. I, I'm not a big fan of everything that John MacArthur writes. I swim in a different theological stream than he does. But he's an amazing historian 
of Christian times. He's an amazing person that gives you some context and some understanding, especially in timelines. And I agree with him. What he teaches and mentions in this book is that when Jesus first called the disciples, there was probably a season, it could have been as long as a year, where they went back and forth with following him and going back to their work. And so I believe that Luke 5 is not a representation of the beginning of the, of the, of the Gospel of John. As some people would say, I think this is later on. This isn't his first encounter. I think this is later. I think he's followed Jesus a little bit. He's gone back to his nets, and, but he hasn't had his desperation revelation yet. And the moment he realizes how desperate he is because of the sinfulness of his heart, it was the beginning of the change that Jesus couldn't wait to invite him into. All right, let's look at another one, Luke chapter 15. Desperation, revelation. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11 To illustrate the point further, I'm not going to read all of this. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. There's some things in the Bible that are given to us not to do. Just saying for the young people over here. His father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man, this is a Jewish man, he would have probably never been around pigs his whole entire life because they were unclean according to the Mosaic law. The the young man became so hungry that that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, and many of you know the rest of the story. If you don't, you can check it out later. When he finally came to his senses. Or you could put in there, when he finally had his desperation revelation. He began to realize that his circumstance and his situation was urgent and was beyond anything that he could do for himself. Jesus spoke these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you would never have to say them? Because he said them, you don't have to live it, but unless you feel it, you're going to get stuck there. If you never have your own personal desperation revelation, you'll get stuck in that place and you will never fulfill all the things that God wants you to fulfill, especially the moment of knowing that heaven is promised to you, the heaven that's to come. We're building to something tonight, so you keep tracking with me. So a desperation revelation is something that you need to have. It's something that I need to have. And we can't talk about this idea of the desperation revelation without talking about the concept of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. Come on, we're in the deep water. The kinsman redeemer. I'm not going to turn to all these. These are for the note takers. But if you were to look through the Old Testament, you would find there's four main ways that the concept and the idea of the kinsman redeemer came into play in ancient times for the nation of Israel. When people found themselves in a desperation revelation, God gave them a way out, and it was through the principle and the law of the kinsman redeemer. So there's the idea of the legacy, the desperation revelation that comes with your legacy. In Deuteronomy 25, it talks about this idea that if you married your wife and then you died before you could give birth to a son so that your name and your legacy, your natural legacy could continue on forever. It was your brother, your living brother's responsibility to take your wife, marry her, and have a baby. And that firstborn son 
would bear the name of the deceased father. He made a way out. You see, this, this person that passed away, right? Their legacy is gone. It's, it's probably the quintessential desperation. Nothing can happen to restore the legacy of this lost man. But unless there's a kinsman redeemer. He's a kinsman. He comes in. He redeems that which has been lost. And the legacy continues on. There's the idea of the, 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 the blood vow, the blood oath, the, the, the avenging of the blood. In Numbers 35, it talks about if someone were to kill me in ancient times in Israel, it would be my brother, my closest. My, if I don't have a brother, it would be my closest relative. That's why it's called a kinsman redeemer. My closest relative would be responsible to slay the person that took my life. The person that took my life would retreat to one of the cities of refuge. There would be a trial there. There would be a trial to determine whether or not it was an accident, but if it's determined, determined that it was intentional, the penalty was death, and they would call for the next closest kinsman to come to that city and take this person's life. The kinsman redeemer. There's property in Ruth 4. We have this amazing story, right, where property has been lost, and, and, and Boaz is going to redeem the property, and he also ends up redeeming Ruth as well, which is a crossover between the one of legacy, but the property's been lost, and so he goes to the city gate. He finds the next closest kin, right? You know the story, and he says, this property needs to be redeemed. Do you want to do it? And he said, yeah, I'll redeem the property. He said, well, there's a woman that comes with it, and he says, okay, I really don't want the property then, and so Boaz says, I will then. He redeemed something that had been lost. Somebody was in a situation where they had an urgent need and they couldn't change it. And then there's this last one. This one's powerful. It's bondage. If your circumstances are so desperate and you could sell yourself into slavery, but you never had the money to free yourself, you could be stuck there for a long time, waiting for the next year of Jubilee. Unless you had a kinsman who would come and pay your debt. You tracking with me? Every one of these circumstances, every one of these situations, they were very real to people in ancient times. They were desperate. They had an urgent need, and they could not do it themselves. And so God made a way for people to be rescued. Now, I think every one of these four, they are history, but they also have a prophetic voice that speaks to us in our lifetime. I think that these four, they speak to us about desperation revelations that you and I need to have. I think there's a legacy desperation revelation that God wants you to have. Maybe some of you need to have it tonight and you've never had it before. And you find it when you get to Exodus 25 through 6. It says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. And then it goes on to say, but I will lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. When you read and see the responsibility that you have to future generations, there should be a desperation revelation that you have. When you realize that there are future generations that are dependent upon your choices, that should overwhelm you. When you look into your tomorrows, when you think about a family tree and you see where your name is and everything beneath it maybe is empty or maybe it goes down to some grandchildren or great-grandchildren, but you know if Jesus doesn't come back, that's, that, those blanks are going to keep getting filled in and all of those names, you know what they're doing? They're waiting for you. They're waiting for the way that you live to see how this text is going to touch their life. The way that you live 
the choices that you make, the words that you speak, the person that you are releases something generationally into the world. And if that does not give you an overwhelming sense of responsibility, I don't know what will. It should cause you to say, I am desperate, God, because left to myself, I'm going to make a mess of my life, and I'm going to make a mess of every generation that comes after me, and I don't want to be that person. I want to unleash thousands of generations of blessing into the world by the person that I am, but I will never, I'm desperate for you to help me do it. A desperation revelation for your legacy. John 10.10, we talk about this verse a lot, the second part of it, but the first part of it is very real. It says the thief's purpose is to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's talking about the devil. But then Jesus says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. There should be something inside of you, a righteous indignation, an anger that wells up inside of you when you think about all the things that the devil has stolen from you. I didn't make a vow of devotion to Christ until I was 23 years old. And you know what? One of the first emotions that I felt after I made a vow of devotion to Christ was anger. I was angry at myself for falling under the deception and the lies of the enemy for those first 23 years of my life. That, that, that is what David was talking about in the worship set. Remember that moment where he says, no, 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 no. This idea of servitude to God, that's what sets you free. And the devil's whispering in your ear that it's bondage, but it's the only kind of bondage that brings freedom. There should be something inside of you when, when you think about what the devil has done to this world, the evil that's still at work in this world, it is okay for you to feel the emotion of anger in response to evil. In fact, I would say that it's healthy. There should be something inside of you that says, if I had the power to slay him, I would do it now. There should be a, an anger inside of you, but you know what? You don't and you can't. We have authority over the devil. We do. But we don't have Christ's authority that he has that he's not going to exact upon him until the end of time. There is a moment where his work is going to come to an end, but it's not going to come by our hand. It's going to come by his hand. There's an anger that we have towards the enemy, and it's a desperation revelation because we know that we cannot give him what he ultimately deserves. How about your property? Psalm 39, 139, if you've never read this psalm, you should make a note and read it tonight. This verse 16 says, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. You, you have intangible property that belongs to you, and it's called your destiny. The work that God has for you to do, the purpose that he put you into this world to fulfill, it's your spiritual property. It's property that belongs to you. It's called your destiny. It's ground that you're supposed to take. It's the good that you're supposed to do. It's the people that you're supposed to impact. It's this idea that you hear talked about in church all the time. When we get to heaven, we want to hear him say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. What, what does that mean? It means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is it means that you took possession of the property that I had given to you in a spiritual sense, that you walked out your purpose, you fulfilled your destiny. But when you think about the things that God has for you to do, Maybe you've never thought about the things that God has for you to do. And if you want to start thinking about it, start reading in this book about the things that he asks other people to do, and I hope it leaves you feeling overwhelmed. Because he always asks us to do things that are far bigger than what we could ever do ourselves. How are you, how are you doing at walking on water? How are you doing with that? How about cutting off the heads of giants that are over, over, over 10 feet tall? Yeah, you doing good with that one? Right? All these moments... 
that he asks people to step into situations and circumstances that are far beyond anything that they could ever be or do. He's going to ask those things of you. He's going to ask those things of me. It should, it should bring about the feeling of a desperation revelation. God, when I, when I think about all that you might ask me to do, maybe you already know some of the things that God has asked you to do and you already feel overwhelmed by I would say, good, you're in a great place. How about this last one, bondage? Anybody ever had a desperation revelation here? Romans 7, 14 through 15 says this, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me. Some of you just need to say that right now. The trouble is with me. When you go home, some of you need to say that to your spouse, and everything's going to get a lot better in just a few seconds, right? The trouble is with me. If we could just practice those words, I'm telling you, my, and I'm, I'm myself included. The trouble is with me. If you've never memorized a verse before, let this one be your first. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Now, I believe that Paul's talking in this particular text about his situation as a person before he came, became a devoted follower of Christ. And as you continue to read, I think as, as, as you explore that text, especially getting into eight, it turns and, and he talks about this isn't who I am anymore. But, but it, does, it does not mean, it does not mean that he won't still have temptation in his life. It, it, does not, it does not mean that he will not step into moments that will feel overwhelming to him. The difference here in Romans 7, I think Paul's writing that, that he's helpless because he doesn't have the power of God at work in his life. The moment he became a devoted follower of Christ, there was a power that came to him. He talks about it to the church of Corinth that no temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will always make a way to escape and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. There's a promise that comes from being a devoted follower of Christ. But even in that moment, there should be a desperation revelation that we have. Whether it's before Christ or after Christ, there has to be an acknowledgement that apart from God, I am helpless in the face of temptation. Apart from the power of Christ at work in me, I would always yield to temptation. If it weren't for him, if it weren't for him, I would fail every time. He's our kinsman, redeemer, a desperation revelation because he said it. I don't have to live it, but unless I feel it, I'll never get past it. Because he said it, I don't have to live it, but unless I feel it, unless I feel it, I'll never get past it. How about surprise endings? Anybody like movies where there are surprise endings? Anybody like those? What, what are some of your favorite movies with surprise endings? Anybody? Your favorite, I can't believe that just happened. Jen. The Life of Pi. No, we watched that recently. That's a great movie. I know. No, spoiler alert. No, I'm not going to tell you. Got to watch it. I know. Yeah. You're still trying to figure it out right now if you can see the expression on her face. Right? Denise. The Usual Suspects. Great ending. Chad. The Village. Yes. The Sixth Sense. Yeah. That, was, that, that might be one of the all-time, Right? One of the all, I remember seeing that movie. I usually don't like movies like that because I'm a chicken, right? And so I remember seeing that movie. Vanessa was out of town. It was before we had kids. We were living in the inner city of Richmond. Went to the Bird Theater, which is downtown. And the theater was packed. And I was there by myself. And it's in the city. You have to park far away. And I remember when the movie was over, I was looking around. Who here will walk me to my car? <laughs> right? Right. 
If you're scary, you don't watch that movie. Just read about it online. Somebody else. Surprise endings. Surprise endings, David. The Prestige. Yes. What's another one? I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to throw out another one, a big one. The Fight Club. Yes. Nathaniel. Inception. Come on, what's the other big one? Sean Penn movie. Had a huge twist at the end. Anybody? Was it called The Game? Was it the one with Sean Penn? Right? It ended up it was just a birthday present for, oh, spoiler alert, sorry. <laughs> surprise endings. There, there's something inside of us that we like a good surprise, don't we? We, we, we like watching the movie and we, we like being in there and think that we've got it all figured out because we're really smart. And, and then all of a sudden it just goes in a completely different direction. I think the greatest surprise ending that's ever happened in the universe was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Because the devil thought he had it all figured out. He thought, I, I got it, right? I think he came from heaven. I'm of that camp, Lucifer, that he was a fallen angel. He, under, he understood the principles of the kingdom. He knew them. He, he got this. The story that God is writing in the Old Testament, it is a story, yes. It's history, yes. But it is also trying to tell us about the story of what we can't see, of our spiritual condition, of what God is at doing to redeem the world, the work that all, so many of the customs, they all have a prophetic voice. And, and all throughout history, as you're reading through the Old Testament, God's saying that, hey, there are moments and times where you're going to be desperate, and unless somebody comes in and saves you, you're going to be stuck there. And the devil, he gets this principle. So you know what he does to Adam and Eve? He draws them in to a place of bondage. He draws them in to a place of sin in their moment of rebellion. And that didn't turn out so good for us because of what we just read about legacy, because of what we just read about generations. So all of us, you know, we were, we were born into the same condition that Adam and Eve stepped into by choice when they ate the fateful fruit. And every person in history has been born into bondage to sin. Every person, nobody, no, no exceptions. Every other religious leader, even, the, even if we were to do another brainstorming session and we could fill these walls with people's heroes throughout history, they started their life just like you and I did, a slave to sin. Every one of us born into bondage. And you know why the devil got excited about that? Because the principle of the kinsman redeemer demands that the only way that the people can be set free is if somebody who's related to them is not part of the bondage can come in, pay the price so that they can have liberty. But the devil knows that every person that's going to be born into the world is going to be born of man, and so there's no hope of a Savior. You tracking? Oh, he's in for a big surprise. Every person throughout history is part of this camp of bondage. Every person throughout history is part of this world. And we are desperate. We understand our need to be free, to be reconciled to God, for a relationship to be restored, for the paradise that was lost to be regained. But there is no one who can come because everybody else is in the same situation that we're in enters Jesus, born of a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lives a sinless life. 
the devil's thinking, if I could just get him to mess up, just, just if I could just get him to even smell the apple, I could have him. But not once. Not in any thought, not in any desire. He lived a perfect, sinless life. But that wasn't enough. Because in order for the principle of the kinsman redeemer to be true, the person has to be a part of our family. Somebody else could come in ancient times and say, I'd like to set this person free. I'd like to redeem the property. I would would appreciate it if you would let me, right? But the person that held the right of bondage, held the debt, had the right to say no. But they did not have the right to say no to the relative. Even if they wanted to keep the slave, even if they wanted to keep the property, even if they didn't want to, the law demanded that they yield to, they had a right that transcended their right so that freedom could come. The devil could not say no to Jesus because we're all part of the same family. That's why God didn't send an angel. It's why God didn't send some other heavenly being that he created that he, maybe he was hoping could do the work because it wasn't just about paying the price. The person that paid the price had to be a part of the family. Jesus is the son of the living God. He came for you and I because he is our kinsman redeemer. And the price that had to be paid was one of death. Paul writes that. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see it as brutal. We see it as ugly. We, we see it as if God doesn't have compassion. And, and you maybe you grew up in churches that said the God of the Old Testament was a God of judgment. The God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. Hogwash. He's merciful all throughout the whole thing. It just looks a little different. But what he does in the old is making ready for the mercy that's going to come in the new. It takes a God who loves you enough to do the hard things so that he can do the great things to come after. He's writing a story. Death is the only price that can be paid for sin. And unless someone who's a relative can come and pay the price, a sinless life, to give their life in exchange for the debt, and the devil was powerless, he could not say no. Because he's part of the family. And he came for you. And he came for me. I invite the worship team to come. Oh, come on. How about a couple of more verses? You like the deep end of the pool? All right, come on. By that lack of response, I'm trusting that it's because you're still holding your breath. You're under the water. First Peter 1, 18. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to go to verse 19. I'm going to read a little bit beyond that. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish, he was destined before the foundations of the world, but was revealed at the end of time for you. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang 
a new song. Anybody ready to learn some new songs when you get to heaven? They sang a new song. You, speaking of Jesus, are worthy because he lived a sinless life, because he was a son of the house. He was worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you, speaking of Jesus, were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Because he said it, you don't have to live it, but unless you feel it, you'll never get past it. Stand with me. Father, give us our desperation revelation. When we think about the relationship with you that needs to be restored, that we would see how desperate we are to fix that on our own. When we think about the legacy that's being demanded of us, the spiritual blessing that we're supposed to unleash with our lives for generations to come, when we think about our susceptibility to temptation, when we think about, oh God, how angry we are about all that the enemy has done, when we think about the work that you are going to put into our hand, the responsibility that you will rest upon our shoulders, our destiny, our spiritual property, that we will have a desperation, revelation, that we'll feel it, that we'll be like Peter and that say that I cannot do this by myself. And in that moment, whether it be for the first time or whether it, whether it be for the billionth time, we would devote ourselves to you, Jesus, our kinsman, Redeemer, and that all that would be with beyond our reach would become within our grasp. Let's worship together. Sweetest friend. 